Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 11. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Well, I'm pleased to have on the show today David Marquet. He's a top graduate from the U.S. Naval Academy. He led a distinguished career in the U.S. submarine force. He commanded the nuclear-powered fast attack submarine, the USS Santa Fe. And he he's well-known for completely turning around the Santa Fe, where it went to being the worst crew in the Navy to being the first. He has a uh, what he calls a leader-leader philosophy, and it's something that I uh, subscribe to. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you know that's what I believe in. He's a uh, distinguished author. He's got a book called Turn the Ship Around, where he highlights the details of how he turned his uh, Santa Fe crew from the worst to the first. And uh, he's a he's a speaker. He speaks to businesses and groups all over the place, and it's a pleasure to have him here with us, the Dose of Leadership. David, how are you today? Great. Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. So bring us up to speed, and let's talk about the beginnings. How did you get so passionate about leadership? When I got to the Santa Fe, uh, first of all, it was, a, it was a surprise. I was I was planning on going to another submarine, and I had been trained for a year to go to a different submarine, and all I really wanted to be was a submarine captain, and I just wanted to be, uh, I wanted to lead a great submarine. And what I thought, the way I thought we were going to be great was I was going to give great orders and great instructions to my crew, and then we'd be great. And I now think that um, you can be pretty good, uh, you can be average, you may be even ahead of the pack doing that. But you can't be great. Greatness happens when everybody in the organization is thinking. And I found out, I learned the hard way when I took over uh, Santa Fe and I gave an order that was uh, unachievable. Uh, and, the, and the officer of the deck actually ordered it, even though he knew it was unachievable and made no sense. And when it came to light later that uh, we couldn't do it, uh, I asked him if he knew, uh, and he said, well, oh, yes. And I said, well, why would you do it? Well, you told me to. So what happens is we train people to do what they're told, and that's exactly what we get. We get compliance, and sometimes we, we try and give a little sort of uh, fairy dusting of, oh, yes, but we want you to think. But it's fundamentally different. So I stopped giving instructions, and I started just giving intent. And I stopped taking control, and I decided to give control. So essentially, everything that I knew and thought about leadership for the past 20 years, including what I've been taught at the Naval Academy, was irrelevant because it's all about giving instruction. You know, you know, being great by giving instruction, being great. You give great instructions. That's how you're great. You give great orders. That's how you're great. You take take control. You make great decisions. That's how you're great. What's amazing to me when you're talking about you come from the naval, you know, you spent basically 20 years in the Navy and you've been went to the Naval Academy. And through all that time, it was basically what they had was a, a leader follower structure. And then yeah. there, there you were kind of in the midst of the battle, if you will. And you just kind of had this aha moment that, you know, this isn't really working. Did you find that you was that was unique in your experience or or did a lot of other officers find that true as well? 
Well, I think, you know, um, the reality is always pretty complex. And our leadership thinking, the main thrust of leadership thinking for the past, I don't know, since the Iliad, has been this sort of the leader as hero, the leader as, the, as a great man, the leader is the person who makes great decisions. Uh, you see it in Beowulf. You see it in, you know, Russell, uh, Russell Crowe's uh, character in Master and Commander. Right. And you see it in, you know, in the Napoleonic tradition. Um, you see it in guys like General Patton. And so, uh, and that appeals to us on, a very, on an emotional level. It's very appealing. But there's always been a countercurrent um, of people who've thought about leaders as not simply making themselves great, but leaders as people who make other people great. Right. And I was exposed to uh, that thinking early in my career. It wasn't the dominant thinking, but there, there were not, there were some seeds were planted on my first submarine when my uh, the first captain was sort of a very sort of traditional leadership guy, and we were we were a pretty good submarine based on the strength of his orders. The new captain came in, Mark Poliath, and he started giving us control. And and for me, it was just uh, it was just like a huge shot of adrenaline right in the heart because all of a sudden, uh, I, as officer of the deck, I could do whatever I wanted. I just had to make sure it was safe and made sense and call the captain and just, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to go active on sonar, we're going to do high-speed angles, we're going to take some data, we're going to... And so the crew, you know, we got, we, we got much more uh, knowledgeable about how the ship operated because we, we were playing with it, essentially, in a controlled way. Uh, but I just saw in myself and in my team, the watch team, this sort of explosion of um, passion, engagement, and thinking, which uh, was unstoppable. And I always wanted to capture that. Um, and so I got a chance, and, and, and I kind of had forgotten because sort of the main thrust, the main you know, leadership thinking, do what you're told kind of thing, you know, tends to dampen down that, that countercurrent. But eventually when I got to Santa Fe and I had this event where I gave an order that made no sense, it all came, came back like a freight train and hit me and said, oh, oh I understand now. We just can't be this way. Yeah, I think you hit on a couple things early on in the first part of the interview before we had the technical problem that it, it it's all about the intent. And that's one thing that I really took away from the Marine Corps. And they drummed it in on the officer side. They said, look, it's not about you. It's about them. And stop walking in the room thinking you got to have all the big ideas, the big grand strategy. You know, just tell them the intent and you will be blown away almost every time about what they will produce for you. Is that the experience you had on the Santa Fe? Yeah, exactly. And um, I fervently believe that. I can't tell you how many times that I would go in and I would say, you know, um, you know, here, here are over, you know, at a very high level, here's our, here's our job. We have to intercept this enemy submarine or we have to, you know, uh, collect intelligence, something like that. And, and then I would just say, where should we position the ship? This is one of the big decisions you make on the submarine is where, you know, where should we go? Um, because once you get someplace, especially if you're in shallow water, it's hard to relocate. You want to be in a good place. You know, so where should we go? How should we do it? How should we position ourselves? And 
I can't tell you how many times uh, I thought I knew the answer in the back of my head. And I said, well, if I don't come up with anything, this is what I'm going to tell them. Uh, but then they came up with ideas that I had never thought of, which, of course, is, is what, what you want. I've been had the opportunity to start working with some businesses now, and I'm working with a company in Manhattan called Next Jump, and the CEO there, Charlie Kim, is very much um, in, in this vein of thinking uh, in terms of intent. Uh, and he noticed that his people were spending a lot of time looking for flu shots on their computers. It's a software company. And uh, so he went to his health and wellness person. So that's the first clue. They actually have a health and wellness person. And he said, hey, just let's do something about these flu shots. You know, let's just make it easy for people to get the flu shots. And about an hour later, you know, so they provided intent. Now, this is in the context of we're a company that takes care of our people and the people that our people need to take care of and rely on. An hour later, he sees an all-company email that says, flu shots will be from this time to this time and this time to this time. Uh, please, you know, come in. Let us know when you're going to come in. And, oh, by the way, you can bring anyone you want. <laughs> and he was blown up, you know, bring the doorman, bring the guy who delivers UPS, you know, bring a Whole Foods guy who um, restocks their shelves every day, bring your, bring your uh, spouse, kids, whatever. He was blown away by that because he, I mean, that was exactly what he wanted. I mean, you, for the extra few hundred dollars that it cost him in, in, in serum that they had to use, uh, the goodwill is, is uh, invaluable. And had he just given her instructions, he wasn't even thinking that far, even though he was the catalyst for this to take care of our people. His people really understood his intent and took it and really implemented it. And um, so it's kind of fun to hear yeah, that's, stories like that. That's a great example, and I think it's important for everybody to to know. And you know, especially a guy like you coming out of the Naval Academy, you know, you're fairly competitive. You're in this officer position. You're you're finally met. You know, you're commander of a submarine. You know, it doesn't get much more heady than that. Yet, to be successful and for you to become from the last submarine to the first, you had to let almost all that go. Did you not? Yeah, and, and um, that, um, that's the hardest part. That, that was a very scary. Um, and, and we made some mistakes. I mean, I gave sure. – uh, there, there were a couple times when I gave people more authority than they really um, – Were capable of. Yeah, right. And uh, we kind of got out, out in front of our headlights kind of a thing. And um, so that's when I learned that you can't just – I mean – Step one is give people authority, decision-making control. L let people make decisions. Yes. That's, that, when, I, when I talk about giving people control, that's, that's what I talk about. I, I never talked about empowering people because my feeling was people are as, as when they're born, they have, they have power. It makes no sense for me to say, well, I give you power. Where did the power come from? Well, it came from me because I gave it to you. Well, then that's not very powerful. Right. So I always felt I never talked about that. What I talked about was giving people the decision-making authority so that they could exercise the natural empowerment that they had within them as human beings. And um, what I realized were was that in order for that to be successful, there are two supporting conditions. One is they need to be technically knowledgeable about what it is, whether it's flying the airplane, 
um, the physics of the nuclear reactor. I mean, these are you know, highly technical things. At what temperature or pressure something happens. Then there's the, um, what are we really trying to achieve here? Uh, which I call clarity. Some people say it, call it why or purpose. But it's more than just a bumper sticker. We're here to you know, defend the Constitution. You have to understand clarity to a pretty nuanced level. You know, exactly how much risk are we willing to take to collect a certain amount of intelligence so that the officers of the deck are making decisions. They know exactly how far to push it and not any, any further. So, the, but you can solve both of those things with work. Competence you solve with a robust training program. We found that in order to do this, our training program had to be two to three times better than what it was. If you're just telling people what to do, and they're just come showing up to work and say, oh, tell me what to do and I'll do it, you really don't, you know, you can get away with a skimpy training program. Mm -hmm. But if they're showing up to work and saying, oh, here, let me tell you what I plan on doing today and how I plan on doing it, that flips everything on its head. And we also spent a lot of time on this issue of clarity. What are we really trying uh, to achieve? And we had little tools for um, understanding that. We, people would people would talk about the kind of decisions that they'd made. Well, there was this, we tell stories. Hey, there was this situation, I made this decision. And I could give them feedback. It was non-judgmental. It was just, yeah, I might have gone a little bit further, or maybe you went a little bit too far. Um, and so we were able to sort of essentially dial in, because these were conversations that we had. Um, no, you know, no blame. Uh, there was a circle of trust essentially and people could be open and we just get it out there and then we learn faster as a result we learn faster and um, you know just just moved up the food chain very rapidly how did you deal with you know you talked about the first part of giving people the um, delegating the decision authority to them with that territory certainly someone's going to make a bad decision and you're going to fail yeah what a, I find a lot of people don't clearly equate with that part of the equation is that you have to be willing to accept that accountability for that failure. Right, right. Yeah, that's so uh, the concept we had was called above and below the waterline. And the idea was my job as the leader wasn't to make these decisions, but it was simply to decide which decisions I could, you know, how far down I could push a certain decision. If a decision was what I called above the waterline decision. Was a, and this comes from an 18th century sailing ship. If you took a cannonball above the waterline, you'd injure people, uh, but you wouldn't sink the ship. A cannonball that hit below the waterline would sink the ship. So things like uh, handling weapons and starting up and operating the reactor, uh, the, the, the Lego blocks of those operations, of course, we didn't, we didn't mess around with because we weren't technically qualified or had the authority to change those procedures. But around all that, there's a lot of stuff that you can change. Like, how are we going to prepare? What time of day are we going to start at the reactor? Who's going to be on watch? What are we going to do the day before? So make sure that the, that, that when we come in to start the reactor tomorrow, three o'clock in the morning, it's going to go right. All that, you can muck around. Where's the smoking area going to be? I mean, really, who cares, right? We don't, we don't have smoking anymore, but when I was CEO, we did. I mean, really, who cares? As long as it's not in my stadium, I don't really care. So, you know, let, let the crew decide. Yeah. You know, why, why am I deciding that? So uh, the leader's job is sort of identify, one of his jobs in this environment is to identify 
which decisions you can let your guys go out there and run with and say, oh, hey, you know, how that, and then just ask, how, how's that work out? Well, not so good. Well, okay, but it didn't really matter because it didn't sink the ship. Yeah. That's a great example. I think another thing tied into that, and in, once you give the people that authority, especially on a, on a ship and a submarine, and uh, there's a perception for people outside of the military or even in, in hierarchical organizations that, you know, the leader is out there, and and sometimes they can be. It can be in the cockpit. It can be on a ship, I'm sh- sure, that the leader is so intimidating. And that there's this kind of this perception that there's blind obedience to orders. Yeah. That we sit there and we think, hey, we do it, and they just follow it. And that may be some of the case for some personalities. But I think what is critical when you got a really good team is when you've got that, you know, junior seaman having the confidence and the, and the ability to speak up in the most critical phases. You got a great story in there. I want you to kind of highlight it to me when you're talking about the uh, in December 1999 when you're in the Pacific and in uh, the yellow sounding was was announced over the, the loudspeaker. Yeah, so, yeah, and and I think you're right. A lot of people uh, do, and they actually like blind obedience. I mean, if you actually ask them in a moment of truth, um, do you want people to talk back to you and question what you do? Just do what they're told. You know, they'll just they'll say, you know, I just want them to do what they're told. Yeah, and. Um, so the first thing you have to do is you have to stop telling people what to do because it's impossible to say, look, I'm going to give you orders, but if you, if they, if you don't like them, then speak up. That's not going to work. We right. say that all the time, mm-hmm. but that goes against human instinct. If you really believe that, then you have to not give orders in the beginning. Uh, and that opens the space for them to say uh, what – what they what they think so for example you go into a meeting and the boss is the one who speaks first and says oh hey I, this is what i think we should do what do you all think tell me honestly well you just poison the whole thing i mean yep. you're not you know you have to so so the first thing is you got to suppress that appetite to talk and let and create the space for them to come up with their ideas and when they do that so i swore that that's the way i was going to be but i i my old habits uh, would come back and I would, you know, fall off my horse and have to get back on it. And one of those instances was we were doing the SEAL team operation. We were we were on the surface off the coast uh, in the middle of the night, no moon, pitch black, waiting for the SEAL team to come back out. We dropped them off several days before. So they're coming out in their little tiny Zodiacs. There are no lights, there are no radios, because all that can be detected and intercepted. They're coming out in the pitch black. We're sitting there in the pitch black. At a position, and if we miss by a couple hundred yards, we're never going to see them. They're never going to see us, and they're just going to drive out in the middle of the Pacific. So uh, we're sitting there; everything's going well. This is about a year into the to the program, and people are taking initiative. And then all of a sudden, they hear yellow sounding, which means the water is shallower than we expected it to be. That was not; it was a, it was a bad sign. So I ran up to the control room because I was just sort of walking the ship. And I would wear this headset and I could listen to the guy's chatter. So I knew what was going on. I ran into the control room, which was dark um, because the outside was dark. And uh, my eyes were kind of adjusting to the darkness. And I look at the chart and there's this little arrow that shows that indeed we are uh, drifting ever so slightly toward the beach. And by the time I get there, the officer deck has already ordered ahead one third, um, which is uh, the slowest ahead speed. So I'm looking at this arrow, which is pointing towards the beach, which is consistent with the, the idea that the water is getting shallower. 
but I don't understand why we're going ahead. That makes no sense to me. So I blurt out, contrary to my instincts, no, we have to back. And even though it's pitch black and you can't really see any other people, of course, everyone knew it was the captain's voice. There was a silence for just a moment, and then the, the quartermaster, who's one of the most junior sailors, says, no, Captain, you're wrong, just period, like that. Like, <laughs> not like, you know, like, no, it's sunny out. You know, not like, is there any question about this at all? Not emotional, just no, Captain, you're wrong. And so I, 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 I was stunned in the silence, and I looked up at the chart again, and um, I studied it, and I realized uh, that this little, this little arrow was starting to get shorter, and what it was is we were moving, uh, we were being set astern. We'd actually parked the ship intentionally with the bow headed, pointed to sea. Right. And confused the direction that we were moving with the way the ship was pointing. We were actually backing slightly toward the beach. The beach was still a long uh, distance off. We weren't in danger running aground. And this bump, bumping ahead one-third was exactly what we wanted to do. And I can tell you that was not the crew that I inherited. I inherited a crew that would have done exactly what I had said. And um, if they had done what I had said, we would have gotten out of position. And sure enough, a few minutes later, the SEAL team showed up and we were able to recover them. And, you know, who knows? It, it, it might have been a lot worse. If, and so I was really thankful at that point. I, I mean, my, basically, I felt my work was done. Yeah. And uh, we, we, we all know examples of, of other commands and other businesses where we wish you know the, the the you know ceo or the ceo said something and everyone just sort of went in the direction we really and afterwards it came it came to light well yeah i didn't really think it was right but blah 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 and we really wish those guys would have spoken up yeah you know there's countless examples on the aviation side community you know there's right. accident upon accident upon accident where the people didn't and the reason why they crashed because they didn't well, if I figured the captain knew what he was doing, and I didn't want to upset him, which is right. a, it's just amazing the human nature that what people will do. Right. Yeah, and, and you guys implemented CRM, uh, yep. which I really love because of its focus on language. And we, I didn't really know about CRM when um, when I was on Santa Fe, but we did. So I guess bumbled into CRM for submarines because we did spend a lot of time focusing on exactly uh, on the very mechanical what words. Are you going to say? What words are you not going to say? What words am I going to say? Um, because language really matters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's so easy to put up a – it's amazing. You just – you know, I'm sure in a submarine with the small quarters how even you can be sitting right next to somebody and depending on how you respond as a leader, you can either put up a brick wall or, you know, you still got that open two-way flow of communication. Exactly. I used to tell everybody, and I still do, when I fly with somebody that I've never flown with before, after I get done with the, the initial brief, the last thing I always say is, you know, I don't care how grumpy, how smart, how stupid you think I am, you know, at the end of the day, don't let me land with the gear up, period. Right. And, and it's an attempt, like you said, to, to break those walls down, because everybody's got an obligation to speak up. The, the junior... Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say... Uh, I. I <clears throat> I had the chance to do some work with the Air Force, and I was up in Minot in December. Um, I guess somehow they hoodwinked me to go into Minot in December. But uh, I was in the uh, B-52 simulator flying with a young um, you know, captain in the Air Force. And it really struck me because as he, you know, he, he took off and then he was going to turn the controls over to me, 
And as he was, every he was just vocalizing everything that he was doing. So okay, I'm, I'm, I'm increasing thrust a little bit. I'm checking this 200 knots, uh, you know, 150 feet, uh, seven degree bank, you know, whatever it was just kind of just con- almost continuously vocalizing a what he was looking at and b what he was doing. And that um, that idea of sort of uh, I, we called it talking out loud or thinking out loud. It's just what. Let the people around you know what you're thinking. And it runs against our grain, at least in, in submarine force, because, you know, we, we tend to just have silence and then all of a sudden this very formal order comes out and then another three minutes of silence as opposed to sort of a continuous chatter of, well, I'm thinking this and this whole idea of ambiguity and this is what I'm thinking, but it might not be right. It's very hard for us as, you know, these alpha males driving submarines around to actually, you know, even, we don't even have a language for it. So we had to kind of reinvent that kind of discussion. The Navy today, as have you seen it? What is the leadership style now? Are they teaching still that kind of master and commander type style to, to running a ship or, or has it evolved? Uh, there's, there's hope. Um, one of the good things is that 10 of the guys who serve with me in my wardroom have been selected to command their own submarine. So they're, they're moving out with this philosophy, and uh, that's a, a highly disproportionate number. So there are at least 10 submarines where more, more crews are being introduced to this idea of getting people to think. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a mix. A lot of it's personality-dependent. Um, you know, who happens to be at the command leadership school at the moment or, yeah. or, uh, or whatever. We have – one of the things I do in my talks is I hold up my leadership book, um, which – and I, I read a quote, which is this horrible quote. It says leadership is basically like use your people as necessary to, to get them to achieve the mission. It, it's basically like people matter nothing. The mission is everything. Right. And um, it's sort of, this, you know, the sort of the epitome of this, the leader as someone who tells people what to do, which I, I say that's achievement. I say that's achievement, but leadership, you know, means we, we're making better people as well as we're making a better mission. Absolutely. Um, so they have replaced that book um, with, with another book, which has a different definition, but um, you know, we, we say these things academically, but then we really get into it and our sort of uh, mammalian instincts kick in and we get the rush of giving orders and we're seeing people running around and doing what, doing what we say. Yeah. <laughs> and it really, it actually does physically make you feel good because as a mammal, you are programmed this way. Your chemic serotonin, dopamine, endorphins will kick in uh, when you're... When you're the guy on top, give an order. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. You know, I'm 15, almost 12, 14 years removed out of active duty, and I would I was always curious to like, what is this generation not like? Especially the young Marines, what are they like? To um, you know, it's a whole different breed. I mean, it was different then compared to you know Vietnam before I came in. But I would really, it's got to be different. I mean, it's a whole different society, different culture. I would think. Do you agree or? Yeah, well, the other thing is they've had, I mean, the Army in particular has had to deal with this because of the recent experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, the, the age-old, the historical problem that military forces have is, 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 is this. Here's military history in, like, one paragraph. 
Weapons get more precise, whether it's the introduction of gunpowder, precision-guided munitions, or whatever. As weapons get more precise, one of the responses is to distribute the forces. You can't have, you know, if you took a picture of a Roman legion and right. compared it to a company of, or, 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 or let's say this, pick the same number, it's like 10,000. What's the area that 10,000 soldiers in Afghanistan cover compared to what, you know, how we pack them in in a Roman legion? Well, that this, so we distribute, we disperse forces. The age old problem is how do you control them? And yeah. there are two fundamental solutions. One is you create a ubiquitous communication system so that as they spread out further and further, I can still reach out from some place on the top and tell them what to do. The other approach is I train them to think on their own so when they're out there by themselves, they understand the intent and they do the right thing without specific instructions. Yep. And we've sort of oscillated back and forth uh, between those two, but I think the Army has really made some pretty pretty good advances down to what I think is the correct path because it's, it's a place of the strength of the United States as a, as a society and a culture, which is obviously, you know, getting letting that guy out there or gal think. Uh, I mean, so how, how can the enemy defeat that? You shoot down all the satellites in the world, it doesn't make a difference, right? That's right. You, you know, so... Uh, Anyway, that's my. Um, well, and I agree. I agree. You know, I think that's what I love about the Marine Corps philosophy: training everybody to think and act like a leader, because they live in a world of chaos, and and, right. and decentralized decision making is imperative for success. Right. You cannot right. succeed without, you know, the nineteen-year-old Lance Corporal making literally decisions that could change foreign policy. Right. You know, you can't move it up the chain. Now there's still elements of that. That's, but that's the ideal, right? Okay. I'm going to make this decision and you're going to support that decision as the ultimate leader, right or wrong. And that you're accountable for that decision. Right. And, and that bodes well for life and business. I mean, it's not just about the chaos of combat. I mean, businesses are chaotic and I think too often businesses, they try to do so much detailed planning and so much, um, command and control because they want to control the chaos. I kind of come out of ways like, look, get comfortable with the chaos. It's chaotic enough. It doesn't mean you're going to pour gasoline on the fire, but at least you can be prepared to be comfortable with the chaos and learn how to, to kind of maneuver and jib and jibe within that environment. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the picture, sometimes I, I talk about this framework. Imagine your typical hierarchical organization, excuse me, organization. At the bottom... You have the people who are at, I call it, at the interface. They are the people who are writing the code. They are the people who are operating the milling machine. They're the um, front desk manager at the hotel. That's, they're the reservation clerk they're, who are actually talking to the clients. They're the people who actually know what's going on, yep. right? Yep. Then you've got, so we'll, we'll call it so information. They've they got the information. Then you've got the authority, the people who can decide to shut the pump off or not, people who decide whether to give a, a certain uh, client a discount or a free night because the airport shuttle was uh, running late, they're up, up here at the top. So there's this gap between information and authority. And the, the historical um, emphasis on, on closing that gap, that's the gap between something happening and you knowing about it and you acting on it because 
we have to channel information to the authority. They make a decision. It comes back down and we take action. So there's a lot of value in closing that gap. And, uh, the effort has been to channel the information up to the authority. Billions, trillions have been spent yeah. on um, gathering and enterprise-wide uh, information systems and balanced scorecards and all this kind of stuff. I'm not saying those are bad, but those are inadequate. What we ought to be doing, or, or the next generation of uh, victors in the business world, are going to be people who take the authority and push it down to where the information is. So that guy operating the milling machine, that guy at the front desk or gal, that reservations clerk, they're not filling out some form and getting permission and getting back to the client two days later. They're making a decision right then and there about what the right thing to do is. Absolutely. And those are going to be the businesses that have speed of execution, agility, and resilience that other businesses that are in command and control just will not even be able to. They just won't, they won't, they just won't understand how they're so much better and faster, and they're going to lose market share. So the um, sort of the, the, the Twitter feed on this is don't push information to the authority. Push the authority to the information. Oh, I love that. I mean, you hit it right on the head. You're exactly right. Yeah. So it's just another way. It's just the opposite way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I mean, that's exactly what I've seen in the 12 years of working in this, this, the civilian corporate side. The more that you could do that. It's scary, though. Yeah. I get it. I mean, I know when you're in that position, it's scary to let that go. Exactly. That's the hardest thing. It's all what people say. What's the hardest thing about this? The hardest thing is you. Look, you're looking in the mirror. That's you. Because you're going to have – it'll feel wrong. Yep. It feels wrong because your mammalian instincts will tell you it's wrong. That you hit it right on the head. I mean that's the, yeah. that's the essence of, of what you – know, that's just the essence of everything about the leadership where we need to go. And it's the, the, the essence of what I believe and the reason why I created this podcast is just for that exact reason. Because if you could push the authority down. Yes. But it's scary. It is. But that's where the courage comes in. And you have to be cur- courageous if you're going to be a leader. You have to. Right. Yeah, I mean, don't be crazy. But you got you to make sure that those two pillars, the competence and clarity. Sure. Are, when, that, when you have that, it's unstoppable. Yep. I, I like to say, I mean, obviously this is over, oversimplification, but – when I got to the Santa Fe, there was one leader, 134 followers, i.e. there was one thinker and 134 doers. When I left, there were 134 leaders, 130, 135 leaders, there were 135 thinkers. You know, how can you compete? No, you, you know, of course we became the top submarine. Who, who could compete with that? Yeah. Everybody the crew was thinking. Yeah. It's unstoppable. Well, it's great that you tapped it in there. It's great that you captured that story. It's great, too. You get the ultimate, uh, what I consider probably... Better than any award, or but Stephen Covey said that yeah, that was well, one of the most empowered organizations he's ever seen. Yeah, it was amazing having him. Uh, the most empowered organization. What a great compliment. Yeah, it was amazing having him. It was a great day. We had him on day, on board all day long. It was really a wonderful day. Well, where can people find you, David? I know you got uh, you speak and you consult and you. Yeah, I got uh, you know probably the best entry point is just my website, David com uh, m-a-r-q-u-e-t david m-a-r-q-u-e-t dot com there's contact there um you can get the book oh now the book is going to go off sale on february 15th for three months and it's going to come back with the second edition okay with, with new publishers so um just so that your listeners know 
there's going to be this gap. The publishers require this gap uh, between the editions, and so uh, it's going to be off sale for a couple months, but it's going to come back on May 15th. Okay. Chance to get it before that. David Marquet, everybody, Turn the Ship Around is the book. And David, I appreciate uh, you giving us a dose of leadership today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Great. It was fun, and um, keep doing what you're doing. It's, uh, it's great work. Thanks, David. Take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.